about money. Now, I know we've already spoken about season two being a little bit different than season one. It's not so heavily focused on purely career. And that's because during season one, we realized, and in particular, I realized that there is more to life than just your career. And there are many other factors that contribute into you living a lifestyle you want to live. One of the biggest stresses I think that comes with career and one of the reasons why we make our career choices can be money. Are we making enough money? Is there enough money that will come in future within this career? I need to start 12 different side hustles because I don't think that the passion career I have will be able to give me the lifestyle I want to live. But not only that, the pressure that we have in particular in Australia on how in the world we are going to afford a bloody house. (laughs) This episode was created for us to look at the big picture and to remember that there is not just one way that we can build wealth. And making wise money decisions to make sure that we can live the lifestyles that we want to. As you know, if you listen to season one, I quit my well-paid, secure job to travel around the world. One of the biggest questions I used to get asked was, how the fuck did you afford that? And the reality was, I had a plan to leave a job and live abroad for at least a year from since I left high school. So I always had money that I was putting away each paycheck, no matter what job I was working, whether it was Coles or waitressing at a restaurant, I was putting specific money aside to help facilitate that future dream of mine. So when the right time came for me to quit whatever work I was in and want to take that big trip I had always wanted to do, I was able to do that. Sometimes that was putting away $40 a month. Sometimes it was putting away $300 a week. There was always that thought in my mind and a money goal that I had to be able to give myself the financial freedom in future to be able to do that. The reason I wanted to share that was because it's one of the things I want you to keep in mind in this episode. We chat a lot about the future and although we don't know what we want to do with our futures, it's always important for us to be able to make decisions that will allow us that financial freedom when we do know what we want to do with our money and our time. Gives us the freedom and flexibility to choose. Now, although that plan has changed and obviously I had to come home due to COVID-19, I I realized that I actually now don't know what I should be doing with my money. I'm saving it and it's sitting in the background doing nothing. And although I feel like a fool for saying it, there is no way I want to be buying a house in the next year or so. I don't know what I want to do in the future, whether I want to live abroad or travel again. And a house just seems like too big a commitment for me right now. When I thought about this, I decided to reach out to an incredible financial advisor that I have spoken with in the past. Her name is Rebecca Pritchard. She has been featured on the podcast, My Millennial Money has written for the ASX and was one of the AFA's rising star of the year. We had a really open and honest conversation about what the fuck we should do with our money and how to make the best financial decisions for our future. This was honestly such an awesome chat and gave me so much perspective on what I should do with my money and things that I should consider for the future. And it also gave me a lot of hope (laughs) that we don't need to be making six figures to fulfill whatever money goals that we have. We just have to make sure that we define what those goals are and take small steps to work towards them. So without any further ado, let's jump straight into my chat with Rebecca Pritchard. The Millennial 
This is The Millennial Crisis by Demi Kotsouris, Wi-Fi not included. Thank you so much, Rebecca, for joining me on The Millennial Crisis podcast. I am so excited to have you on today. We had a lot of fun in our last chat, so I'm excited too. I know. If anyone hasn't seen it, me and Rebecca spoke about looking at our financial future in a time of crisis through the pandemic. And I know a lot of the news that we consume right now is all very bleak. What's going to happen? What could possibly happen? And if you haven't checked that out, it's a really good to to have a look at. Rebecca really eases us and, and reminds us that it's never too late to start. Exactly, exactly. It's good just to have a conversation about money in a way that's not totally terrifying. (laughs) Exactly. So I start off every episode with asking people their name, their age and what they do for work. Gosh, I feel like I'm on like an online dating site now. Uh, I'm Rebecca Pritchard. I'm 31 and I'm a financial advisor and coach. Also a mum as well. And you've got your your baby uh, in daycare at the moment, yeah? Yes, I am. I am dialing in from his room, which is my my makeshift office in this working from home environment. So you'll see me just like rocking on the rocking <laughs> chair. I think a really great place to start would be, what exactly is a financial planner? Financial planning, clearly I'm biased, but I think it's one of the best jobs, the best services in the community. I, I describe it as a really sexy blend between money and health. So it's not a conversation about investments. It's not a conversation about money, but it's around saying, how can I connect my money or my client's money to their lives? And that's a really, really fun conversation to have most of the time. So as a financial planner, my my job is to help people articulate their goals, to work through their priorities and then look at the resources that they have on the table now and the resources that they're going to have over time to try and come up with a strategy to connect where they are to where they want to go. And this can involve things from cash flow management, debt, risk management, insurances, through investing in shares, property, super, wherever. And I guess there's three words that get thrown around a lot, financial planner, advisor, and coach. Are they all the same thing are actually different a financial coach there are coaching qualifications a coach is different to a planner and you can be a financial coach or a money coach without being a qualified advisor now financial planner is where the industry has come from uh, where people identify with that word as planner and financial planning was I guess you'd describe it more as a vocation whereas the financial planning or advice industry is going through a huge overhaul in the last few years around minimum education requirements and professionalism and as when as the industry is moving into a profession rather than a vocation that's where that advisor title is becoming more relevant so look some might argue it's you know, tomato, tomato, really speaks to a heightened level of qualification and professionalism around that person in that role. When you say vocation title, what does that mean? The the most common example is, did you go to uni or not? So could you have done a diploma versus have you done a degree um, to be qualified in this area? Because I'm just thinking from two perspectives, how difficult is it to to get in? How much, how much Again. education do they need to, to jump in somewhere like that? It's such a good question. And that was me, right? So well, seven years ago, uh, I, I was working with an advisor myself. I loved what they were doing, but I was working as an accountant. And I thought, this is awesome. And, and I was like, I want to do that. <laughs> and, I, and I retrained and I essentially jumped, jumped the fence. And back then, uh, because I already had a commerce degree, I needed a diploma um, to sort of bridge the gap and I could start working. These days, because the education requirements are higher, you need a degree to get into it. Like you can't become an advisor with six months of training anymore. Uh, and so the, the standards are higher, which is fantastic. It makes me sad that people like me would have to go through, sort of jump through hoops a little bit more because I don't want to deter people from entering this industry. Uh, but I think as a whole, it's really exciting for you know, Australian consumers that the bar is higher as well. And I guess, The big question for me is why would someone go to a financial advisor or coach? 
I describe that there's a few different categories of people who, who can work with. Let's use the word advice here. There's, there's people who are not in a great situation. Either they're in a lot of pain, a lot of debt, they're stressed out about their money and they're saying, I, I need to get from a really crappy place into something that's functional or ideally good. So an advisor can play that role to stop, stop the bleeding and help you feel healthier, happier and, and a very minimum secure. So that, that's a really common scenario. The second group of people are people who are just kind of chilling. You know, they're, they're, not, they're not in debt or they're not really struggling, but they're also not surging ahead. And so it's around perhaps breaking that sense of inertia and getting them on a fast track to, to reach their goals. The third category of people are those, what I call, who have a big pile of cash, right? And some people would really relate to that. Other people are like, who are these people with the big pile of cash? I'm talking like... 50, 100, 200, the biggest I've seen was like $650,000 of cash um, that they've just been saving in a bank account and it's saying, I feel like I should do something with this money. I don't know what to do. Can you help me? Right? So that's another category of people. The final category of people who, who work with an advisor is those who say, I'm already doing pretty well, but I want to go from good to amazing. And, and this is the example of me, someone who's really fit at the gym like they know how to use the machines, but they still get a PT because they're trying to be going to that next level. They're trying to get to something elite. And so that, that's the fourth group of people. And some people identify with that going, hmm, all right, like I am pretty good with my money. I don't need help with budgeting. I'm already doing a bit of investing, but I, I want to go to that next level. And an advisor can, can really ramp things up. I think it's, I guess, sometimes for a lot of us, it's something that we don't think about until we hit a certain stage of our lives where we're looking at other people and we're seeing them purchasing houses or doing these other things. And we're thinking, Oh, maybe I've got some money saved, but also I don't know what I want to or should do with it. I'd never considered a financial planner or advisor and wasn't really sure what they did until I, I called up a few different ones and I said, what do you do? <laughs> and could you help me? So what do you do? <laughs> yeah. And, and, it's, and it, it was really interesting to hear some of the questions that they were asking, which I'm sure that, that are common things that you ask, which was about my lifestyle and what I'm doing. They were the first few questions that they asked me, not about my money. The first few questions were, well, are you working? You know, um, what are you doing with your money? What are your plans for the next few years? Do you want to purchase a home? Why? And those kinds of questions. And they really, you know, that really took me back because I think we're used to, if we go to a doctor, perhaps they're like, what's wrong. But this one, it was, well, how are you living currently? And I thought that was so interesting. So from your perspective, what is your approach to financial um, advising? Like you said, it's starting with a conversation about what's important to you. So that, that speaks to two areas. One is your values as, as an individual, perhaps as a couple or as a, even as a family. And the second is what are your goals? Like what are your intentions for yourself over you know, the, the next couple of months, the next couple of years, the next few decades? And, and seeing what is going to motivate you. To, to make changes because you're speaking to an advisor because you want to make changes, right? You, you, you're not speaking to them for someone to give you a pat on the back and say, don't change a thing. You're doing it perfectly. <laughs> you're saying, I'd, li- I'd like some help to do things slightly differently or very differently. And so it's saying, what's important to you? What are you trying to achieve? And therefore, why will this motivate you to make those changes? And that will help us to then work everything else out. I, I say that understanding what money means to you and what resources you've got, articulating the goals. There's stage one and two. People want to jump to stage three, which is around defining that financial plan. So that's the sexy stuff. It's like, oh, do we buy a house? Do we buy shares? You know, what do I do with my debt? People want to go straight to that. It's like, that's a massive dopamine hit, you know, getting getting into like strategies and, and, and tools and hacks and, and like results coming there. But if you don't do what stage one and two well, you, you can lose a lot of money, you can create a lot of stress and you can just go completely down the wrong road. Given there might be people listening that are making a really great income at the moment and other people who might not be making that much of an income, are both types of people, should they be considering a financial planner? When we are tighter with money, all of these extra little costs that we think are just without reach at the moment. It 
doesn't matter whether you're earning a little or a lot because it's also all relative to, to your circumstances and the goals that you're trying to achieve. But to use an example of around insurance, so people say to me all the time, oh, $100 a month or $80 a month for insurance, I can't afford that. And I think if you can't afford $100 a month for insurance, you can't afford not to have the insurance. And, you know, I think there's a, a proverb, it's like, if you can't find an hour a day to meditate, then you need to meditate for three hours. <laughs> and it's it saying, like, if that's the case, like, this is so critical for you. And and also making sure that you're, you're making a plan to sort of change that status quo. In terms of working with a, an advisor or the advice process, there's two elements also to consider and they're, they're different for everyone. So one is what we call like an initial project and that's, you know, a bit of a health check, it's a game plan, it's it's making changes now and building a really strong foundation level. And the second is ongoing advice. So some people really need both. Other people need need that project up front and then they're probably okay for a few years and then or or even longer before they sort of need to make some changes. And so having an advisor doesn't necessarily mean a ten year commitment. Um, it can because that's what some people need. But often it's around saying, I need help right now. I need to get started. I need to be in the right, moving in the right direction. And, and then I can come back to it over time. For me, the big misconception was like, a lot of us have in our minds this mentality. And I'm not sure if that comes from the generation before us is not having trust and thinking people just want to take our money. You go to a specialist and they say, in three weeks, we'd like you to come back. And you think, oh, they're just saying that because they want to take my money. Why did this kind of fix things? And, and a lot of us have this, this thought process. It was interesting for me when I had a couple of consults with different advisors that all three of them came back to me and said, you actually don't need one right now because I was about to go overseas and do all this stuff. They said, you actually don't need, I don't think we can help you right now. Come back to us when you come back, which I found really, really interesting. And you forget that these people are passionate about helping people with their future and they see it every day. For people who are thinking, oh, this is just, they're just trying to, take my money, you know? What would you say to kind of ease them in that way? Look, it's, it's tough. And unfortunately, there's been some bad eggs in the yeah. financial advice arena. And going back to talking about professionalism before, those changes in standards as an industry are really exciting because they're pushing out people who don't want to be there. Mm. And the, the, because the bar is higher, it, it's you know, it's more expensive to operate as as a business. I think the the standards are different now. You're the people who are here want to be here, and that they're operating, you know, with excellence. And so, I mean, that's fantastic to hear. It is around working with people that, like, working with clients that you want to work with, that you believe you can help, and the clients who want to engage with you and find value in the work that you're doing. So it is it is a two way way straight. Interesting as well, there's also changes of the guard in terms of how advisors charge. You know, years ago, it used to be like a percentage of money invested. Um, and I think that really connected with that idea of like, I'll see an advisor when I have heaps of money. Mm. Whereas now so many advisors are charging like six fees, uh, whether it's like an engagement fee or a flat fee over, over time. And it's saying, it doesn't actually matter whether you're investing a thousand dollars or a million dollars. Okay, it's still probably a, the same or very similar conversation that needs to be had. Those people with lower balances probably need more help, more work. And so even changing the business models really supports, I think, the, the perceived conflict of interest and it helps to put people's mind at ease. I know when I bought a property a few years ago and I used a buyer's advocate, having someone who charged a flat fee rather than a percentage helped me feel really comfortable. Like I was confident she was going to do a great job anyway, but it made me feel really comfortable that there was just no doubt in my mind that there was any conflict of interest. The first thing a lot of us would do is jump on Google, right? Financial advisors in my area or whatever, or good financial advisors. And it's quite overwhelming then to think, okay, well, what's good, what's not? What are some questions that you could ask if someone is considering? Because I, I know a lot of people especially in the service industry, there's always a free consult where you can have a chat to people in the beginning, right? And so what are some questions people should be asking to figure out who's the right financial advisor for them? 
to take advantage of those consultations. You're right, most, most uh, practices will offer them. Listen to the questions that you're being asked. So that the, the advisor or that professional, they, they will hold your hand and they will facilitate that conversation. But if you can listen whilst you're talking <laughs> to, to see, okay, like you said, what were they asking? Did they ask me straight away how much money I had in the bank or how much I earned? Or did they ask me what was important to me? And it's working out then how you felt in, in those conversations. Again, let's assume that advisors are all qualified and have the technical skills and all will put their hands up if they don't. Therefore, what you're really trying to ascertain during those conversations is, is there a right fit? It's like going on a date, but going on a few dates where you, you know, jump to bed when you get married. It's, it's saying, like, I know we don't know each other really well, but is there a spark? Is there a chemistry here? Am I happy to say, yeah, I'd like to get to know you a little bit better? <laughs> and that's to sort of quote the castle here, like, it's, it's Marbo, it's the vibe. It's, it's saying, do I feel like there's, there is this connection here? Because everything else will sort of flow from that. But because, you, because you're not talking about money per se, because you're talking about your life, you're talking about sometimes your health, sometimes really personal things. If you do not feel that sense of implicit trust, and and comfort and security then it doesn't matter how brilliant that person is in their technical skills they're not going to be the right fit for you yeah and you're so right I guess money is such a taboo still and we sometimes feel uncomfortable talking about it with our friends and our family so with someone you you have to feel comfortable to be able to tell them everything right because that's the only way they're going to be able to do their job the best yeah, absolutely. And and as an advisor as well, if I'm working with somebody who is being a bit secretive or a bit vague and won't be sharing, it either makes my job very hard to do or it may, means that I can't do my job. Mm. And that's when you actually say to someone, look, I'd love to help you, but right now I can't mm. because I don't have all the answers. I don't, you're not giving me the whole picture here. So that, that sense of comfort is incredibly important. I think it's it's for every industry and a lot of especially like consulting people who are in consulting have trouble with that. I always say when I teach my marketing classes, when you watch like suits or a lawyer show or something and they go to court and the lawyer's blindsided because their client never told them something. It's the same thing, I assume, when it when it comes to financial planning, it's like, well, how can I help you the best if you don't tell me the secrets in your closet, right? We all need to know. It doesn't matter how ashamed you are of it. We need to know these things. And like you're talking before about going to the doctor, you can't expect the doctor to give you a great diagnosis if you're not going to tell them that your back was hurting this whole time um, <laughs> or, or whatever it was or your family history was this. You know, these things are all really important. It, it really is not about the money in the bank or, or your pay slip. It's around all of that other quantitative and qualitative data. Now, I guess a lot of people, especially you know, as we as we get older, we're getting accountants. Right of passage as an adult, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But uh, I guess a, a financial advisor is something that we might not have ever considered. So, considering you have an accounting background, what is the real difference between? the two like can we find one that does both or is that a is that something or are they two completely different areas because I think for a lot of us listening we're like oh yeah money money people are all money people you know yeah and and if I can just like take a little bit of a a sledge at the accounting industry accountants love to talk about planning as well like planners and they're not I like Two different fields. Yes, there's overlap in terms of skills. Yes, there's overlap in terms of conversation, but certainly in terms of technical abilities and qualifications, accreditations, two different things. You can quite frequently find a practice that has teams who operate in both. Not very common to find an actual individual for that. And that's because of things like professional education and development, you know, the the level, like those, again, to go back to those standards, what it means to hold sort of dual qualifications. I gave up my chartered accountant accreditation a couple of years ago because it was just like, it's too hard. You know, I'm, and I'm not... You did the CA. I just don't. So I, yeah, I was a CA wow. up until a couple of years ago and, and I was like, no, nah, this, you know, I'm not a practicing accountant. It's actually too much risk for me to even call myself a CA because I'm just out of practice yeah. with it all. But it's, yeah, it's good. I've got obviously that, that background. And so in a perfect world, you would actually have both to go back to your original question saying, you know, I talk about like little triangle of love. You've got your lawyer, your accountant and your advisor. 
all three are important at different points in time, more important, less important, have different perspectives. And an accountant is there really to talk about caps, structuring, if you're dealing with like being a sole trader, business, individual, it's really in, in the realm of tax. An advisor is there in everything else. So we have to think about tax, but we will also defer to your accountant as the expert in there. But we're thinking about your health, when it, how it plays into like conversation around risk or insurance. We're talking about cash, we're talking about debt, we're talking about investments. Ideally, you would actually have your lawyer, accountant and your advisor all talking to each other because, because everyone has a different perspective. And what makes sense purely from an accounting point of view might not be as great from a planning perspective. And what makes sense from a legal perspective may not take into consideration the tax implications. So if you can actually get those experts talking to each other or, or all of you in the room to sort of duke it out a little bit mm-hmm. so you get a balanced approach rather than just seeing like under one lens. Interesting because I'd never I'd never considered that or even thought of that but it does make sense because if we're bringing it back to the doctor thing the doc the GP refers you to the the specialist and straight away the files are sent across right so I guess the same a similar thing would would help when it comes to your, your finances which is yeah. absolutely and yeah and recognizing that one you know in this scenario like we're the gp mm. um but we can't be experts in everything we can't we can know where to find the information but we can't retain incredibly complex technical skills in every single area yeah for sure there's a couple of things that people might be thinking about when we've just had this conversation and i guess the first thing is where do we start? To put it really bluntly, not everyone needs a planner, but everyone needs a plan. Like that, that's it in a nutshell. Um, and if you're struggling to come up with that plan yourself or you're, you're not confident with it or you're just hitting a wall, you're confused, that's when a planner or an advisor can help. So I do recommend people have a crack at doing, at least doing some basics themselves, you know, looking at their budget. Uh, looking at a money smart, the government website, great budgeting tools. You know, having a conversation with your bank if you've got a mortgage or any kinds of debt. Thinking about your goals, like they're the things that you can do yourself. You're you're the expert in those areas, and then see where you've got gaps. If you're not on track or you're not confident with the pace that you're going to reach your goals, that's when reaching out and speaking to an advisor can be incredibly beneficial. Because also one of the questions that advisors love to ask is, how would you like me to help you? Mm-hmm. And so if you don't know the answer to that question, it can be really challenging. So if you can think about what's going on, like what is the lay of the land for you currently? What are you trying to achieve? What are you doing at the moment to get there? And therefore, where are you at? I love that you said that because I am that type of person that will just, yeah, finances, I should probably do something about, that um i'll just go to an advisor straight yeah so how can i help you oh i called you because i thought that i probably should (laughs) and you're like "Mm." yeah so we have to do some work ourselves we have to actually you have to do some work great okay i am not a magician i can just go poof and and make all your dreams come true particularly if you can't articulate what those dreams are in the first place so you know it is I say to people, I can't, I can't force you to be successful. Yeah. Um, you know, there is input that you need to, to bring to the table. And I guess I, I had a conversation with some friends the other day and they were saying to me, oh, you know, if the house thing wasn't such a worry in my mind, then I'd be so cool with making X amount of money a year. You know, if I didn't have to buy a house, then I wouldn't be so worried. Particularly in Australia, there is a lot of pressure for us to purchase a home and when I think people might be considering like oh if I'm going to an advisor that's probably what it's about for me planning to buy a home and what do you have to say to people who feel that there is only one way to invest I would say to those people that's not the case there are a lot of different ways to build wealth and in that example you've just shared to me you've shared my least favorite word several times which is should uh, you know, it's like, I should do this, I should do that. And it's just crap. Um, I think it's an incredibly destructive word when it comes to 
defining our goals or, or managing our money where we get caught in, in the should and we're making poor decisions because of it. It's really funny because I recently, I, I was away and I've come back and my, while I was away, my sister's like, oh, the car's gone. It, someone hit it. It's been written off. And since I've been back, my dad's been saying, when are you buying a new car? When are you buying a new car? You need a new car. When are you buying a new car? And I was like, this time I was like, you know what? I'm actually going to crunch the numbers because me and my sister started sharing a car and it was the best financial decision we had ever made. And I started crunching the numbers and I thought, if I rent a car, they've now got like an Airbnb for cars now. If I rent a car for a hundred days, a year even, and this car's only $30 a day, I don't have to pay fuel or anything like that. Just my rego and my insurance alone was more than me renting a car for a hundred days of this year. And then I'm like, and for me in the future, I'm not sure if I'm even going to be in Australia. So to purchase something, it doesn't really make sense. And then once I had said that, he was like, oh, really? Oh, okay, sure. You know, so I'm, I'm assuming that got me thinking, like I'm assuming it could be a similar thing with, with a house. It is, but it's amplified even further. So, you know, I talk to a lot of people and, and one of the common themes, if not actual goals for the millennials, is around flexibility. Mm. It's around choices. It's saying, I don't know what the, the next five or ten years are going to look like, but I want to know that when that time rolls around that I'm not stuck and I can choose. And I love property. You know, I'm very pro-property, but property sucks when it comes to flexibility like it is it is the least flexible asset that you can pretty much buy outside of like a business because it's chunky it's expensive it has high transaction costs and it's slow to move if you need to um you need to sell and so when it comes to flexibility property is very you know very rarely going to be your friend around that and so if you're feeling potentially trapped around the car purchase times that by 20 and that would be the impact of the house yeah so I guess it's not it's not a it's not a nightmare we're not you know um sending ourselves to a financial grave if we're not buying a house before 35 or something like that no, no, let me just speak to all the listeners or the viewers here. No, you are not financially reckless. You are not, you know, financially irresponsible. You don't need to grow up. If you don't have a house, that is fine. On the condition that then you do something else with your money. That's where the expression like rent money is dead money came from. It's where people were renting and spending less than what they would if they were to buy a house, but then they just spent the surplus money. They weren't making other smart decisions. Yes, in that scenario, renting is, is dead money. But if you can be clever in the gap between what you're renting and what you would otherwise be paying on a mortgage, it can be a brilliant financial decision for you. I guess I'm talking now from, from the people who may have been saving in the backgrounds for, for a property or something like that and feel like it's too much of a commitment for them because they're not sure what the next few years would look like. Is there ways that we can still be investing or I guess securely? Because I think a lot of the times we look at stocks and people are looking, especially us as instant gratification lovers we're looking for things that we know will make us money really quickly. Uh, where, where's my eight percent return i'd like that today please yeah yeah so yeah. if you were looking to invest what is the best way or safest way to do that or where can we start looking to consider that kind of stuff? yeah it's really exciting and this is the advantage of being in 2020 and not 2010 or 1999 there there are platforms that exist that allow us to do this really affordably so 10, 15 years ago, transaction costs were a bitch. And so investing regularly was quite expensive, um, whereas now we can do it really affordably. And so we can actually invest in exactly the same way that we've been saving, which is like every month or every fortnight or every week and buying, you know, invest investments in $200 increments or 100 or 1,000, whatever our cash flow allows us to do. And like that's the advantage of technology. It's cheap it's easy it's, it's really straightforward and it probably has a nice app that sits on your phone the the challenge with that is investment markets like shares or exchange traded funds 
they're revalued constantly. And so the valuation, we see it go up and down. Mm. Property is also getting revalued constantly, but we don't see it because, you know, you, the bank isn't valuing or we're not having a value out to our house. So that that's one of the advantages and disadvantages of, of investing in, in shares or exchange traded funds over property is we see the movement and, and that can affect our relationship with it. But realistically, investing in good quality stock, whether it's in Australia or overseas, I, I don't see it any more risky than buying property. If anything, because you're you're buying smaller quantities, you're not putting, you're able to get diversification, you're not putting all your eggs in literally like one address. It, it, you know, it comes with a lot of advantages and less risk, I would say, than, than purchasing property. There is a right person for each basket, right? There's not one person that only fits in one area. Or I guess there is a stage in your life that is right for each of them, would you say? Or Yeah, yeah. and let's, let's call it shares, whether it's exchange trade funds, but let's just call it shares as a category. Mm-hmm. Shares are flexible. And, and for millennials, with, when you've got that objective of achieving flexibility, that's really, really attractive because it, you can go from shares to property um, like perhaps you sell your shares in, in a couple of years and it becomes your property deposit because right now you're not sure if you want to buy a house, but you still want to do something with your money. That's easier and less transaction costs, less wastage than trying to do it in the other direction going, I bought a property and a couple of years later, I'm like, I don't really want it anymore. It, it, it's easy to go for, from shares to property than property to shares. Certainly, it doesn't need to be one or the other. If anything, I would say they complement each other really, really well. Again, talking about flexibility, because you can buy shares, sell a portion of them, some of them, $1,000, $20,000, $100, whatever it is, you can't sell the kitchen if you need to get access to your money. So if you, if you do invest in property, whether it's a property to live in or as, as an investment, but then you complement it with some shares around it, you can get the best of both worlds potentially there because you have the flexibility from one whilst having the chunkiness of the other. And I think it's one thing that you mentioned there about that flexibility is that financial freedom is so important and can really change our mindset and our outlook on a lot of things. Yeah, and when the going's good, the going's good, right? You know, if we, we plan for, for sunshine and rainbows, but when, when life throws you a curveball, if that same asset, whether it is shares, but let's talk property here, creates a sense of stress or anxiety, then that says to me that your plan isn't working as well as it could. Mm. You know, whether it's that you need to have a cash buffer or that you need some other assets, like I said, to complement what you're doing, if it, we need to have that flexibility because we, we just we can't know. We don't know what the future is going to hold. We I mean, for goodness sakes, we're sitting here locked down in a pandemic. Like, there's never been a better example of, like, the shit that life can throw at us um, as right now. And so we have to be open-minded. And even if you are pretty confident in what you want to achieve, there still needs to be an undercurrent of flexibility in there. And I'm glad you brought up the pandemic because I don't think we can avoid it, (laughs) avoid it now. And I love in our last chat, we spoke about how you actually kind of got your start investing during the GFC. For some of us that are consuming a lot of the dread news or hearing our parents and people around us saying, oh my God, the world is coming to an end. We won't be able to do anything. What what can we do in this time? Should we be sitting ducks just in case or should we be taking action now? And what if we are in crippling debt right now? If you're not secure in your basic standards of living, it doesn't matter how attractive the investment markets are. That's not the arena that you're playing in right now. No, if you're, if you're buried in debt, you don't have a cash buffer. Let's not even talk about investments. You need to sort that shit out pronto. Right, that needs to be the priority. And when I say pronto, it might be a year, it might be a month. That needs to be where your focus is. If you are comfortable, though, with, with those basics, you're, you're, you're feeling secure in your baseline, then right now, any sort of adversity, particularly adversity in financial markets, represents opportunity. So, as you said, a younger Rebecca <laughs> and studying commerce, watching, you know, talking about financial um, markets and, and, and cycles, was like studying that and then you know Beth Stearns went down and the GFC started to unfold and I was like oh oh okay and I was watching as I was learning and 
you know, I had some cash back then and I thought this is a great time to start investing. Um, I didn't invest at the bottom. I invested on the way down. So I, I bought shares and then had to watch them go down oh. for a period. But I was, I was confident that I still essentially bought, I bought them on sale. You know, I, I, it, was, it was the financial version of a quality jacket that I'm going to hold for 20 years. And I was like, you know what, at the end of the day, the 20% off. I didn't get them at the 50% off sale, but, I, but I, got it, I got a good deal. And then, you know, throughout 2009, 2010, yet yeah, those assets turned around and it was, it was a really great outcome. It was, it was scary. It was uncomfortable. It was doing something different back then. But I understood the, the logic behind it and, and I held fast on it. And right now, that's where the markets are at. Like it, it is a time of uncertainty, volatility, and unfortunately, people lose money when they sell if they don't need to or, or they're forced to sell at this point in time. So if you are in a position where you can be investing cash or cash flow, there's a pretty big opportunity at the moment, whether it is in shares or in property, to, to be investing right now. And I can tell you also, if you're not one of those people who have cash right now, there will be something else, whether it's in another five years mm-hmm. or another 10 years. Like the global financial crisis and coronavirus are not the only two situations of adversity that we're going to see in our lifetime. Every couple of years, whether it's every three years, five, 10 years, there will be another shitstorm. We know that. Like that's what life looks like that has implications for the financial market and it can be an opportunity for you to get ahead. I, I remember saying in the global financial crisis, I was pissed off that I only had like three grand of cash. I was like, I wish I had a hundred. I was like, I'm going to save my money over the next five years. So the next, next time the market has a heart attack, I'm going to be able to invest more. And, you know, I use my money for other purposes. <laughs> in the but yeah, I was like when, you know, March, 2020 came around, I was like, well, this is it. This is, you know, this is what you were thinking about uh, a decade ago. And, and I put more money in. I think for a lot of people, like you said, who are at the point where they just need to sort their finances out right now and just get on top of things. Maybe that means downsizing. Maybe that means realizing I'm living beyond my means right now and figuring out that short term plan. There is hope for the next shitstorm that that's when you can start. <laughs> it's the one, it's- the one promise I will make, I can't make promises about like investment returns or growth, but I can assure everyone there will be another crash <laughs> at some that. point. So if you, can, if you can get your ducks in a row, if you can sort yourself out now, even if you can't take advantage of this one, you'll be in a better position to do it for the next one. I have two more questions before we get to the, to the last thing. And I guess my first one is around hex debt is that something that we should be trying to pay off as quick as we can or should we let that kind of roll out yeah it, it's a it's a great question you're also showing your age there Jimmy, which i love because i don't think it's, it hasn't been called hex debt for years but everyone still calls it hex i think it's help or like some other acronym now oh um, really but it's it yeah i know and it was <laughs> years ago but everyone still calls it hex look general advice this is you know has to be um relative to your circumstances but i say to a lot of people unless that debt is really pissing you off upsetting you or keeping you up up at night there are better things to do with your money right and the reason for that is because that is like really really cheap debt Mm. you basically pay for inflation on it like a couple of percent you'd be better off saving paying certainly paying off any other debt you've got whether it's credit card or uh, paying off a mortgage or investing in something that's going to give you five, six, ten percent, then paying off debt that is costing you two percent. Like that's basic math. Then override that, also overlay that with your personal circumstances. Like I said, if it if it upsets you, it stresses you out. Said, yep, go for it. Mm. But ninety nine times out of hundred, probably say cool your jets on that. Use your money if you've got spare cash. Use your money to build some wealth. It's it's something that I think comes up in conversation a lot because people have different, I guess, ideas on it. And I think only recently, my, my friends, I mean, we've been out of uni for a few years now, and and people have started to say like, oh, I took a look at my hex debt, and I didn't know that inflation was a thing. Like, I didn't know that we still had money out onto it. Should I pay it off? Like, should I get rid of it? And the one thing I'm adding there is. It's also, you know, relative to your earnings. So yeah. 
if your if your career trajectory is going upwards and your earnings are going upwards, then you can be confident that the, the debt will sort itself out. If you you do have a lower income or you feel like it's not really going to grow over the next few years, then that might cause you to rethink. But you know, I would imagine that a lot of your listeners, you know, they're either sort of in the middle or early of their career, and they can they can be confident. Like I think I was 27 when I paid mine off. It was awesome. I did. I was very deliberate in not paying anything extra off along the way and using my money elsewhere by buying shares during the DFC. <laughs> a a small bit of effort now makes a massive difference down the track. So people often overestimate what they can do in the next 12 months, but they underestimate what they can do in the next decade. Thinking ahead, you know, it, sometimes it feels like we're allergic to that as millennials. And I think we get it reinforced from other parties being like, millennials are just all about, you know, being, being present and like, uh, you know, YOLO and all of that kind of crap. If we can think ahead, because we have, because we're young, because we are probably going to earn good money because we're educated, you know, if we can make a small effort now, the benefit of compounding that over time is huge. And now I want to talk about a bit of a bit of your financial history and how you've kind of gone. So to, to share some of my story, so I, you know, I started working at what fourteen and you know, diligently saving my cash because I wanted to buy a house, um, or shares and and what what that meant was I had cash available during the GSC and, and I could I could invest. It also meant that then I had a deposit so that I could I could buy a house. And so I bought my first house at twenty two or twenty three. You know, I sold my GSC shares and that formed part of my my deposit. And again, thinking ahead, people go, Oh my goodness, like how are you where you are now? It's like well because it's because I made a decision when I was 22, I made trade-offs along the way. Like I, I didn't go to Europe back then. Uh, you know, I, I made compromises that then have compounded and allowed me to have choices now. I didn't know what my life was going to turn out like. I didn't know when I was going to get married. I didn't know what family was going to look like. But I knew I wanted options and I made plans around that. And I think that's such a big thing to wrap our heads around you, know, you don't need to know everything for the future but you can still make inroads towards it and again one of the best examples that I can share is we my husband well he was my boyfriend back then lucky <laughs> him we're now married we started working with an advisor at 23 right like we probably earned like 50 or 60 thousand dollars each you know so as a household but that's, that's a, a good income, but it's certainly not like a super sexy income. But we, we knew that we were early in our careers and we were going upwards. And we said, let's spend the money now. Let's invest in the process and getting our shit sorted so that then as our income grows, we can grow faster. And, you know, back then we were investing between the two of us, our first share portfolio, we were putting in $200 a month between the two of us because, you know, we had a mortgage as well back then and, and we still had a life as well. But it meant that, you know, the next time someone got a pay rise, that $200 a month went to $500 and, and it sort of compounded from there. And as a result, like we have amazing things available to us now and we still live very much within our means because we made good decisions back, you know, seven, eight, nine years ago. I really like that you said that you made compromises because I think that's the biggest thing that, you know, we forget is that we're, however, however we're living, right, we, we need to make a compromise along the way at some point if you're wanting to do those big travel trips now well that means you know probably if you're saving at a rate that rate's going to be a little bit slower than what someone who isn't doing that and wants to enjoy it later in life and there is no I think the other misconception is I hear people talk all the time like well if I'm not going to do it now when am I going to travel um you've still got a a whole lot of like time. Like the rest of your life. <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, subject to border restrictions, but yeah. yeah, absolutely. And it is, we've got to make peace with that. And I'm 
I think it's an advantage of being a millennial. I very, very rarely use the word sacrifice. It's almost always saying it's a compromise. Mm. Um, and, you know, to, to consider what's right for you and, and what, what's important to you. Like I watched pretty much all of my friends travel. Right. And and they had I mean, fortunately that was like pre Instagram days, but still like <laughs> they were having a great time and I was at uni, I was working part time, I was, you know, really investing in that part of my life. And then it was hard, but I, I think I did a really good job of not being jealous because I was really conscious like that was my choice. I had the money, I could have travelled, but I was I was trying to save for a house. And then, you know, you fast forward a couple of years down the track, you're sitting there in your house and other people are like, oh, gee, like, that looks amazing. It's like, but, but there were trade-offs along the way. It might be that you travel for two weeks a year like an absolute baller because that's more important to you than spending three months sort of living a little bit leaner. Like, if that's what's important to you, that's great. And I think, I, I, or I know that over the last decade, I've, incredibly confident in my life decisions that the trade-offs I've made are what makes sense for me and my family and like right through to you know as you said I've I've got a a young child now like I went back to work my son was four and a half months old and I went back to work part-time and that was partially because I love my job and I missed it (laughs) Um, but it was also because I I wanted to continue to earn because there were other goals that we wanted to achieve as a family. And I thought that's more valuable to him and to, to our family than me being present 24 hours a day for a year. Um, and so all of these decisions flow um, and there is no right or wrong. Like there is no should, but being really intentional around what you're doing, why you're doing it, what levers you want to push and pull on, because we can actually achieve some pretty amazing things if we put in the work. You hit the nail on the head there with the why. It's, it's such a big and underrated question, right? Like, why am I doing this? Why am I wanting to invest? Why am I wanting to go away? Why all of these things? Because a lot of the time, like, are you doing it because everyone else is doing it or you feel you need to do it? Or is it because you actually want to do it? And I think... It's amazing for everyone to have heard all of the advice you gave and, and saying, well, what are your priorities? And then, and then you tell, like hearing your story about how you made that sacrifice early on, you did all those. Compromise. It's compromise. Sorry. (laughs) You made that compromise early on and, and it's, it's put you in the position now. And I'm sure that while other people are making that compromise now, your goals for the future are, are totally different and, and you were able to stick with your why and, and are comfortable in that, even when people might've been questioning it. And I'm sure you went through phases where you questioned yourself, like, is it worth this compromise right now? You know, or. Yeah. And, and one of the best ones I can share with your audience is that we're, we've been in this house for, for a number of years. It works brilliantly as a family of two. It works adequately as a family of three. Um, and, and we're definitely, we're, we're wanting some more space um, soon. And we've made the decision that, we're going to rent. Um, and like, we've never rented. We moved from our parents' house into a house that we bought. Um, and we, we were talking about this and, and, and doing the numbers and thinking about our intentions and going, look, if we sold a bunch of things, we could, we could buy the house that we want right now. But it would really compromise a number of our goals. And a couple of years ago, my husband was really sort of stressed out at work. And it made me so freaking happy to be able to say to him, sweetheart, if you don't want to work right now, you don't have to. Like not indefinitely, like you're not allowed to retire <laughs> just yet. But if, 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 if you, need, you need a moment or, or a period of time, that's okay. And, and for me, the idea of buying the next house that we want to, that we really want to live in versus renting that same house, I can't say that to him anymore. I have to say to him, sorry, sweetheart, like right now, I need you to commit to working for at least another 20 years. And that's for me so tangible. And every time I, I'm like, oh, do we really want to rent? I don't know. I like, I like owning. And that, that sentence is everything for me. 
and or even for me like you know again with a young child knowing if for some reason my son needs me at home or one of us at home all the time that we, we really can make it work and we're not like no amazing i i love that story and i think uh, that in different ways is going to resonate with people and and it's really cool to hear that despite you know the pathway that that you've always been working towards and your love for, for property and owning and stuff like that, you're still have been open to the other, like you're now open to the other way because of, like you said, that question and that why that, that you've answered, which is, it's really cool and really admirable. One of the things is like, are you sure? Are you sure we want to do this? And you know, we, we bought again, like I'm not going to be embarrassed in talking about this because I know how hard we've worked with it. Like we bought a holiday house last year year before which is probably not what the average 29 year old does but it's saying you know yeah we, we can we can buy the next house but we have to give up that which we love or we have to say well we're never traveling overseas for another decade or we have to sell our child <laughs> or a kidney or, like it's just it's it's all all these these trade-offs and you know it's it's not saying that that's right for everyone but keep going back to like what are you trying to achieve how can you use your money to to meet those objectives and and then be confident in those decisions when you see somebody else doing it differently? Yeah, no, I, I love that. And I think that's so important. I recently, the, the last chat I had was with someone and he had gone from making six figures to now being freelance. And, and he goes, I've got other worries now a little bit, but the demeanor and myself is so much better. And I recently went from saying, I'm never going to have a, a, I'm never going to want to make a resume and now saying, you know what, that financial stability for me is really important and it's okay to know when you need to kind of maybe what you thought Evolve. was right. Yeah, exactly. What you thought was right might not be right. And it's okay to change your mind. And, and when it is the right decision, you know, it feels right deep down. Uh, and and like for us right now, if we were to buy a house next year, it would also mean that we need to like start researching schools because we want to be in the right school schools. I can't be bothered doing that right now. <laughs> like that is so far from my mind. And again, it's like all these sort of qualitative factors that come into it, like going, yes, renting is a great call for you next year. And and I'm really excited. Like I'm such a big advocate for renting, and it's kind of pissed me off for the last decade that I haven't done it because I feel like. I want to advocate really publicly around it, but I, I sort of haven't had that opportunity. And now I'm so pumped to do it and I'm so pumped to talk about it. You know, I, people say the words, and, you know, along with should, just is another word that I hate. Oh, like, do, you, do you own that or are you just renting? And it's like, I'm not just renting. Like, I'm renting. I'm renting and it's awesome. Um, and, yeah, I'm really, I'm really proud to be part of that changing of the narrative in the community. I love that. That's awesome. So I have three questions that I ask all of my guests towards the end of the episode. And the first question I have for you is what is the first small step you took to get to where you are right now? I made sure I spent less than I am and I knew what, I knew what my numbers were. You know, that, that was right back at like 14 year olds, Becca. I love that. And it's never too late to do that, right? No, you can be 34 year old Rebecca, 54 year old Rebecca, but you know, doing, knowing your numbers is, is so important. Know what you have available to save, know what you can feel confident with to spend, know what you can invest. The second question is, what is your biggest millennial crisis right now? And essentially I define a millennial crisis as a privilege problem that consciously or subconsciously plays with your mind or your mental health. I, I know the answer to this and again like I recognize I operate in a different realm to a lot of lot of people but it's something that does really worry me I I worry about the divergence in in wealth of the community my friends and family over the next 10 20 30 years you know right now we all kind of feel within reach of each other but I also know because of the, the impact of compounding, compounding happens whether we use it to our advantage or not. So you're either compounding the good stuff or you're compounding the bad stuff. And, and I know that whether it's my family or my friends or, or my peers, if people aren't making good decisions with their money now, 
there is going to be a noticeable gap in our lifestyles in 10, 20, 30 years time. And it really worries me. Yeah, that's an, that's an interesting one. And I, the example, you know, certainly in your early thirties is um, like a hens or a box where someone's like, let's go to Bali. Mm. And there's a whole bunch of people who are like, can't afford that. And the other group of people who are like, yeah, sounds good. And yeah, I, it doesn't sit great with me. And this actually has nothing to do with how much you earn. Because I, I, I know so many people who are on, you know, whether like teachers, nurses, working retail and hospitality who are awesome with their money and are really well set up. Uh, you don't need to be earning like $100,000, dollars to be on that sort of upwards trajectory that I'm talking about. But, but I think right now with millennials, it's somewhat masked. But I think that that, that divergence is just going to get wider and wider across friends, circles, the wider community. And that's also why I work in this field because I try really bloody hard to change it. It's, it's super important. I love that. And the last one is what is one thing that you are still curious about or want to explore? My intention is to, to sort of go into the community, whether it's through a philanthropic organisation or through politics. That's definitely an area that I'm very passionate to explore and also drives me to set myself up really well financially so that that option is really available to me, you know, in, in my sort of 40s and 50s because I can still live the lifestyle that I want um, independent of what my salary is. So that's something that I'm, I'm incredibly passionate about. And again, you know, talking about getting people to think long-term, just throwing it out there as a concept. You don't need to know exactly what it looks like, but, but I'm very curious about that. Amazing. That's really cool. I love that. I know that we spoke about a challenge in, in our last chat and I know you've got something. Yes. So my challenge is to get people thinking medium and long-term. So I want your audience to think about a goal of theirs that is more than three years away, Mm. right? And if it's more than three years away, that implies cash is not going to help you get there. You need to invest. So think about what the goal is. Think about what resources you have available to work towards it, whether it's 50 bucks a week or a month or whatever, whatever that number is. Um, And then to actually do some research, Google, investment options a hundred dollars a month and that will start helping to bring the pieces together to actually start investing for the medium term start creating those options for when when those goals sort of start crystallizing or, or have more visibility around them wow i love that that's really cool and i'm gonna make sure i do that one as well and um make sure you do it when, when, if people do it, um, please make sure that you, you send me a message or put, post it on your Instagram stories and tag me and also tag Rebecca. You are the best place for people to, to be in touch or to tag you for stuff like that. Would that be Instagram for you? I, I know a lot of the listeners live on Instagram. Yeah, I live on Instagram, so at RF Critch and, you know, we can, we can chat, yeah, sh- share what you're doing. I'd love to see what people, um, how they go with this challenge. Awesome. Amazing. And all of that will be linked in the, in the show notes as well. Thank you so much for the amazing chat today and, and all of the wisdom that you've shared with our audience. Is there anything else you really want people to know before we finish up? I'd, I'd love people to be confident in themselves and talking about this and I do believe in you know being an example I'm very very confident to talk about the successes that I've had with money and you know the poor choices I've had as well and and how I've gotten to where I am but you know if you if you can be that person to to share whether it's within your friends or family like that has such a positive impact uh that that flows out into the community and this is how we change the narrative this is how we we change those trajectories over the next few decades. This is how we change the sentiment around money. So if I can ask people to do, do a combination of think, think medium, think long-term, but be confident in yourself and, and your relationship with money. I love that. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Thank you for having me on today. It's been great. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of the Millennial Crisis Podcast. If you do this week's challenge, please be sure to 
message me or Rebecca or tag us in your posts on how you went with all of your results. If you love this episode, please do me a massive favor and rate it on whatever podcasting app you are listening to this on. And if you haven't already subscribed and you're listening every week, just bloody subscribe. Honestly, all of that support helps me to get more incredible guests on the podcast and just keeps me going. If you have any thoughts on this week's episode, I always love chatting to you on Instagram or via email. So please get in touch. I am holding a few conversational sessions with people as the weeks go on. So that's something super exciting. If you want to get involved with that, just send me a DM or email and we can chat about that then. With that all being said, I will see you all next week. Have a good one. Take care. Bye.